All right, friends, Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, verse 32 is where we're beginning this evening. Good to be with you tonight. There are certain names that when we hear them, they immediately remind us of some particular event in the life of the individual who bears that name, right? The name itself becomes redefined to include the memory of some episode the person was involved in, be it famous or infamous. Rosa Parks, John Wilkes Booth, Tanya Harding, <laughs> Sully Sullenberger, right? Immediately, we all start think of poor Nancy Kerrigan getting that crowbar to the back of the knee, right? That's for Sully Sullenberger, by the way. No, I'm just kidding. That one went right over. Okay, I'm sorry. While, of course, there's a lot more to each of those individual people than the incidents they're famous for, we'll always remember them and their names for those fateful days that sealed their place in history. Now, in our text tonight, we're going to be introduced to three remarkable characters. Two of them have only one scene on the stage of Scripture. The third will become a major player in the spread of the gospel and will eventually be numbered among the apostles himself. Though their legacies couldn't be more different, their entrance onto the scene and into the story of Acts has a lot of similarities together. And so we're going to begin in verse 32 of chapter 4. It says, Now the large group of those who believed were of one heart and mind, and no one said that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. The communal unity that we read about back in chapter 2 at the very start of the church was still continuing. We're not exactly sure how much time has elapsed between chapter 2 and chapter 4 here, but that communalism and that unity and that very precious you know, nearness together of the church body was continuing. The persecution that had broken out on the church, light though it was, it hadn't stalled the church. It hadn't really scared anyone off. Acts is the story of how nothing, no nothing, can stop the church. Doesn't matter what it is. Problems from inside, problems from outside. Uh, gentle opposition, violent opposition. Uh, the religious, you know, uh, hoity-toity people, the whole Roman Empire. Uh, storms on the sea, snakes in the fire, like nothing can stop the church. Now, as the opposition intensifies and becomes lethal, the believers will be scattered out of Jerusalem and throughout the Roman Empire. But for now, things were continuing as they had since Pentecost. Uh, and Luke continues his description of what it was like in verse 34. J jump over verse 33 for a minute. It says, for there was not a needy person among them because all those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of the things that were sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. Then uh, this was distributed for each person's basic needs. Now, we know that Luke is speaking in general terms here for a couple of reasons. In just a moment, we're going to see an example of a particular married couple who did not feel quite the way that's being described in these verses. Later on in a close passage, a group of people are going to come to the apostles and say, hey, some of the needy widows are not being given what they need. And so Luke is describing in general the general unity of the church and, and the things that were going on 
in the church. Now, what's important to note is that this remarkable arrangement of communal living and the the incredible generosity that's being talked about here, it wasn't a purposeful initiative of the apostles. It wasn't a plan that they were working out in the congregation of Jerusalem. It wasn't a program that they enacted. It wasn't a law they put in place. This wasn't communism the way that we uh, know it in the world uh, throughout, you know, particularly the 20th century and forward. Uh, In communism, it's wrong to hold a private property. The rulers at the top control everything and you're at their mercy. That's not what we're looking at here. Instead, what was happening was that there were thousands of Christians. They were living together in house to house. Many of them were foreigners away from home. And as we would expect in a group like that, there were people with needs, all sorts of needs. People needed food. People needed shelter. People needed helps of one kind or another. As those needs arose and became common knowledge, the Holy Spirit would speak to the heart of other individual Christians in the church, and then those individual Christians would take it upon themselves to help. And that often meant that they would sell some home or property so that the proceeds could be used for ministry when it was needed. The apostles didn't get up on you know, a Sunday morning or whenever they were gathering, they were meeting day by day, house to house. They didn't get up in the pulpit and say, it's wrong for any of you to own anything. Any of, any of you who own a field or own a house, you need to sell it. You need to divest yourself of all your wealth and that way prove what a good Christian you are. In fact, in a few verses, we're going to see Peter himself affirm private property and say, hey, your private property is yours to do with what you wish. The apostles also weren't standing up and saying, okay, we've got a big group here, something going on, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to start a fundraising campaign. Any good, you know, self-respecting movement needs money, and so everyone who has something to sell, sell it right now, and please bring it to us. Now, what we find here and what scholars agree on is that as needs were arising and came to light, the Holy Spirit would lead individuals to share and provide and pour out generosity. It's sort of pictured, it's going to be exampled in a moment by Barnabas, but it's sort of pictured by what Peter and John did for the crippled man at the beautiful gate, right? They're walking by and he says, well, I don't have this, but what I have, I'll give you. And they're ministering to that that guy as the Holy Spirit led them in that moment, right? And so that's what we're seeing. The Christians there in the church of Jerusalem, though, did not limit their generosity. They truly did bear one another's burdens in a wonderful way. We'll see in a few passages that they established a daily feeding program for lots of people. Later on, we're going to meet a Christian woman who busied herself making clothes for people who needed it. You know, we teach our kids sharing is caring, right? Well, it's not just true for kids. Of course, it's true for adults too. And it's especially true for Christians because we are commanded by the Lord to bear one another's burdens, not just intellectually, but in reality, that we are knitted together and and, uh, intimately involved with one another's lives and that we bear one another's burdens. And we are commanded to be generous with what we have using our own individual physical resources to meet the needs of others. Now, three times in our text tonight, we're going to see the phrase laid at the apostles' feet. And it's referring to Christians in the church that are coming and giving money for ministry. Now, we're not exactly sure how this worked, but based off of the context and uh, seeing how the whole story here plays out, 
it seems that it was in some way publicized or done out in the open. The whole point of the problem with Ananias and Sapphira is that they saw what Barnabas did. They wanted to get in on the spiritual accolades of it. And so they say, okay, well, we're going to go and do that. And when we go, we will say this was the price. And then we gave all, right? So we all are, most of us are familiar with this story. But three times we have this unusual phrase, laid at the apostles' feet. And using the context, it seems like these offerings were done on some level in public. Now, when people gave, others knew about it and talked about it, apparently, and this arrangement ended up being a terrible temptation for two of our new characters tonight, Ananias and Sapphira, this married couple. Now, we try to be very sensitive when it comes to criticizing Bible characters. We care about that a lot here. Uh, uh, people here, you know, in, in contemporary times are way too fast and freewheeling and criticize, to criticize and put down Bible characters. We don't want to do that. It's almost always unfair when we criticize Bible characters like that. So what, I was, what I'm about to say is not meant to be a knock on the apostles or the Christians in general, but as I've talked about before, there are a lot of people who say that we just need to copy what the first century church did and that if we did what the first century church did, if we did that today, then we today as a church would be as pure and powerful and free of trouble as it was in the book of Acts. Well, first of all, that's pretty selective reading. The first century church in the book of Acts and then forward through the epistles had many problems, all kinds of problems. We've been seeing that as we study through the book of 1 Corinthians on Sunday mornings. Every church has problems. If you think that someday, you know, you're going to move across the country and find a church that doesn't have problems, none of us are going to ever find a church that doesn't have problems. And there's never been a church in the history of the church that doesn't have some issues that the Lord is working on. But second, it seems that this method that they had for receiving offerings in public was a bit of a holdover from their Jewish traditions. Now, all of the Christians in the church at this point, all of them are Jews, every last one of them. And uh, uh, Jews that were, you know, by and large devout, who followed the, you know, the temple system and all of that. When we go to the Gospels and see the ways that the Jews gave in the temple, what do we see? We see that oftentimes, for example, the Pharisees and lots of people were very ostentatious, very public. They wanted everyone to be sure that they knew how much they were giving and how important they were because they were giving so much. And it was normal in that system and in their culture at the time to do these public offerings. Oh, look, oh man, look at the wad that guy put in. He must be spiritual. That's pretty amazing, right? And, and it was, it was a, a public thing, a thing people talked about. Jesus even sat there for a while and he talked to his disciples, right? The widow's mites, they were looking. You could see and hear and, and understand what people were giving. It was very public and uh, it was very out in the open and something people talked about. And so it seems that that sort of cultural tradition had found its way into the operation of the church. And the truth is that that method of giving in a public way where everybody sees what you're giving and knows what you're giving and they're talking about it. You know, Jesus criticized that method really heavily. In fact, when he was instructing his disciples about giving and being generous and giving toward the ministry, he specifically told them they shouldn't give publicly 
in that way or receive the praise of men. He said, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. So why was this public contribution happening on the apostles' watch? Why are all these gifts coming and being laid at the apostles' feet in this somewhat public way, in a way in which enticed Ananias and Sapphira to hatch their whole plot? Well, you know, if we're being frank, as you read the book of Acts and take a look at the way the church was run and the way the church was going, especially here at the beginning, it doesn't seem like the apostles were very involved with the administrative and logistical details of the church at all. They just aren't. When a complaint was brought before them or will, when a complaint is going to be brought before them in a few passages about inequality in the distribution of of goods, right? It says, hey, everybody who had needs, all of their needs were met, you know, their basic needs. What we're talking about here in Acts chapter 4, in a couple of passages, a group is going to come and say, hey, there's a group of widows that are being overlooked systematically, and it's a problem. And the apostles' response is what? You guys go figure it out. You guys find some guys who can solve this problem, go solve the problem. The apostles didn't really get involved in that administrative stuff. They just did it. When revival later breaks out in Samaria, it's not because the apostles launched some sort of campaign or effort to reach the people there. They didn't say, let's send a missions team to Samaria. The Holy Spirit sent some people to Samaria, and revival breaks out there. And because of the Holy Spirit, all kinds of people are getting saved. And then when the apostles get word of it, they say, well, we should go down there and check it out. And so they go down there. And so what we see, though, is that on these administrative levels and on these logistical levels, these guys, the 12, they simply just weren't very involved. You even think of the Jerusalem Council. That's a big deal, and we're really thankful for the clarity of the Jerusalem Council, right? But you think, think about it for a minute. You have the 12 who had been with Jesus. They are the apostles, right? And a group comes and says, hey, what should we do about Gentiles getting saved? And they're like, yeah, we don't know. We don't know. And you think, wait a minute. What do you mean you don't know? And they say, yeah, we don't know. And my feeling about it is this. The apostles were guys who were commissioned by Jesus Christ to what? They were commissioned to go be fishers of men. Jesus said, look, you're going to be fishers of men. And he gifted them as evangelists, and he gifted them to teach, and he gifted them to do certain things. And at least at this point, it doesn't seem like there was a clear leader out of the 12 who was gifted with administration. That's not something to be mad about. It just seems to be the case. Now, in this case, the tradition of the Jewish culture seems to have influenced the way the church collected their offerings at the time. And not only was it not the way Jesus had instructed, it also created an environment where jealousy and selfish ambition could become a temptation. That's what's about to happen to some uh, of the church members here. And so all of that to say, number one, like we keep harping on in these studies, when people say, we just need to do things like the first century church, the first question is, well, which one? Jerusalem, Antioch, Corinth, Laodicea, blue, you know? And, so, and then secondly, let's even take the, the first couple of you know, chapters of the church in the book of Acts, Acts 2, 3, and 4. You get to 5, and you're like, no, that's the cutoff right there. But Acts 2, 3, and 4. And you see that you know, there were some things that they were doing 
that weren't specifically directed by Jesus. Nowhere did Jesus go and say, here's what I want you to do. On day one of the church, thousands of people are going to be saved, and then you're going to start meeting house to house, and then you're going to go to the temple once a day, and then you're going to do this, and then you're going to do that. What did Jesus say? He said, wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit, you're good. And then you're going to be led by the Spirit, and you're going to be filled by the Spirit, and you're going to be instructed in the Word, and you need to hold to the doctrines that I have given you, right? But some of these things, the way they were organized and the way that they were doing things, I'm not sure this was a good thing that they were allowing to happen. We don't do that, right? If you're a person who gives to this church, we're so thankful for that, and you are, uh, you know, who the Lord is using to maintain our ministry here and the different things that we do. Do we have you come forward waving your offering in front of everybody and then drop it plank in front of the... That would be weird, And yet it seems like something like that was happening. And why was that happening? We don't know. We have to speculate a little bit. But we do know that that is the way that things were being done in the temple. Of course, the temple at the time was being run and maintained by super carnal guys. The guys in the Sanhedrin who we've been meeting and talking with the last few passages. The guys who conspired to kill Jesus Christ. The guys that allowed money changers in to scam God's people. All that kind of stuff. And so... We also want to make sure that our traditions in whatever church we find ourselves in or, you know, in our culture, our spiritual sort of Christian traditions, we always want to be careful about them. What are our traditions? Are they biblical? What kind of consequences that we don't intend might they create? You know, the consequence of this system of laying at the feet created an environment where someone a couple like Ananias and Sapphira could give place to envy and give place to selfish ambition, and it ended up being their downfall. And so we want to check uh, our traditions, and we want to check the way that we're doing things and say, do they have a biblical basis? And if there's not a specific biblical basis, it doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong, but what are the consequences of the choices of the way that we live out our faith, particularly in the church group? And so what were the apostles doing at this time? We'll go back to verse 33. It says, And the apostles were giving testimony with great power to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on all of them. They weren't busying themselves with trying to set up a utopian church or lead a revolution against the empire. They were doing what they had been called to do, and that's be fishers of men. They were preaching the same message they had been, and many people were getting saved day by day thanks to the powerful grace of God. Verse 36 Joseph, a Levite and a Cypriot by birth, one of, uh, and the one the apostles called Barnabas, which is translated son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Some people are so well known by their nicknames that their birth names are all but forgotten. Wild Bill's real name was James Butler Hickok. I don't know where Bill came from. Plato, the philosopher, he wasn't actually named Plato. That was a nickname. His birth name, it's believed, was Aristocles. If you would have asked me last week what Barnabas' given name was, I don't think I could have come close. I would have shot in the dark. And you know, I'm probably going to forget in a couple of weeks here, and that's okay. He's forever known to us as the son of encouragement. He was a man who was a faithful source of comfort and edification and grace, He was a man who embodied this nickname that the apostles had given him. The Bible's really big on nicknames. 
I'm glad about that. We're a nickname family. All of, the, all of our kids and all of us have like a million different nicknames. Each one gets a little bit farther off of what the original name is. And so sometimes I'll like say a nickname of one of the kids and people are like, what? What are you talking about? And then I don't even know where it comes from half the time. But the Bible's big on nicknames. It's something God likes doing. He renamed Abraham. He renamed Jacob. He renamed Simon. He's going to rename Saul. And he's going to rename you and me in eternity. Revelation 2 says that when we're with him, he's going to give each of his people a white stone with a new name that only you and he is going to understand. You're going to have a special nickname just between you and the Lord. I think that's a sweet thing. Barnabas hadn't been a Christian long. None of these people had been a Christian very long. But he was already so fruitful and so active in the ministry that he had won a nickname. The apostles themselves are like, dude, there's that Barnabas guy. He's that guy who's encouraging people nonstop. At some point, some need arose, and he took it on himself to sell a field he owned so that the money could be used to help out with that need, and he gave it all uh, to the Lord for that purpose. Sometimes people, commentators or Bible teachers, will say that it was wrong for Barnabas to own a field. I've probably said that before, that his selling of the field was an act of repentance, that he needed to get right with God. They cite the fact that, well, he's from the tribe of Levi, right? And they say Levites can't own land. But listen, that's not true. Number one, it doesn't even fit contextually with what's going on. A guy who's in abject sin, yet he's called the son of encouragement. He's risen in, in, uh, you know, in the eyes of the apostles as, man, look at that guy. He serves so much, he needs his own nickname. But it's just not biblically true either. While it is true that Levites were not given an allotment in the land of Canaan under the Mosaic system, there is no specific restriction saying that they can never own any land. In fact, Deuteronomy talks specifically about land that the Levites own. And God commanded Jeremiah the prophet, who was also a priest and a Levite himself, he says, go buy a field from your cousin, and it's your right to do so. And it's in Jeremiah 32. And so, you hear these things and you think, okay, we don't need to assume that Barnabas had done something wrong here. We're so quick to say, look, he did something wrong. And you think, wait a minute. It doesn't say that Levites can't own land. It says they aren't given an allotment of the land under Joshua, and he was giving it out to the tribes. Levites own land. They could own land. It's fine. And he had a right to do so. He's not doing something wrong here. Instead, we should be encouraged by his wonderful generosity which is the point of why Luke used him as an example here. What's Luke talking about? Incredible selfless generosity, true generosity to meet the needs of someone else. And he says, and let me give you an example, Barnabas. What's more generous to sell a field that in reality is illegal for you to have and then launder the money through the church or to sell a field that's rightfully yours that no one asked you to sell, but out of the overflow of the Spirit inside of you, you decide to give up what belongs to you so that someone else can be blessed. What do you think Luke's talking about? And I think he's talking about the second. Barnabas serves as a bright example of the selfless spirituality in the life of a Spirit-filled Christian. It's not like he's like, ooh, I'm saved now oh, I have a bunch of stolen stereos. I can sell those and then I'll give it to that guy who's hungry. That's not what's going on here. This is an example of incredible spirituality and generosity and the way that the Holy Spirit works on our lives when we are not holding fast to our possessions and says, yeah, I'm willing to give that up so that someone else can receive ministry. But then comes chapter 5. 
As Marlin says, when the angler fish appears there, good feelings gone. The church is about to have a real bad day in Acts 5. It says this, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. However, he kept back part of the proceeds with his wife's knowledge and uh, brought a portion of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Ananias and Sapphira are our other two new characters in the story. They get one scene. It's a sad one. Apparently, they had seen the response of the people to the generosity of Barnabas and others like him, and they wanted to get in on the accolades. The lure of notoriety and prominence can drive a person to do shocking things. And in the case of Ananias and Sapphira, the plan was simple. Their crime seemed victimless, right? Who's to know, and what's the big deal even if they did know? Uh, But they had a problem. Verse 3, then Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds from the field? Wasn't it yours while you possessed it? And after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? Why is it that you planned this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Peter demonstrates here what will later in the New Testament be called the word of knowledge. God gave him supernatural insight into the actions and thoughts of Ananias and his wife, exposing their sin. Peter reminds us here that sin of any size or sort is an affront to God. They thought they were pulling a fast one to get a few extra likes on their latest post, but to God, sin is not a trivial thing. It's not a small thing. It's abhorrent and it's offensive to him. And we Uh, are always good to remind ourselves of that. Verse five, when he heard those words, Ananias dropped dead and great fear came on all who heard. The young man got up, wrapped his body, carried him out and buried him. What if everyone who told a lie today was struck dead by God? Oh no. A 2002 study by the University of Massachusetts found that 60% of people couldn't go 10 minutes without lying. And that the average among that group of people who lied, lied three times in the 10-minute period. I mean, so lying is just, yeah, yeah. We even call it like, that's a white lie. It's a lie, but yeah, who cares, right? So why was it such a big deal that Ananias and Sapphira did this? Was God overreacting? I mean, it's pretty severe what he did, right? There are a lot of speculative reasons. One is that they may have become influential leaders in the fledgling church, and that would have caused a lot of problems since they were being influenced by Satan. Another suggestion is that God was working to protect the absolute purity of the church. Warren Wearsby points out that biblically, we see that when God does a new thing among his people, he often executes more severe judgment at the beginning of that work. We think of Nadab and Abihu, sons of Aaron. They were struck dead because of their sin at the dedication of the tabernacle. We think of Achan, uh, the man who was put to death for his sin at the beginning of the conquest of Canaan after the walls of Jericho came down. Those instances, like this one in Acts 5, are dramatic. They're even shocking. But we should remember that God's attitude towards sin is the same when I lie as when Ananias and Sapphira lied, right? Now, I'm thankful that the Lord isn't striking me dead for, for the sins that, you know, I commit. And God gives us power to not sin. Of course, none of us are perfect. The Lord gives us forgiveness and grace and things like that. But we have to remind ourselves that, oh, but God's attitude towards my sin is the same as his feelings toward the sin of Ananias and Sapphira, the sin of Achan, the sin of Nadab and Abihu. It's just by his grace that I'm not consumed because of it. And so uh, we need to remind ourselves of that. Verse 7, 
There was an interval of about three hours, and then his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Now, I find this immensely interesting. After all of their planning, all of their scheming, when it was time to set everything in motion, apparently Ananias had ditched his wife and wanted to get all the attaboys for himself. This was a plan they worked together. And there was no like separation like, well, the, the women can't be in here. It wasn't like the temple. The church was just all mingled up all together. And whatever kind of public service they had, it's time for the offerings. I don't know if he, he lied to his wife or what, oh, we'll do that on Tuesday. And then he rushed over to do it, but he ditched his wife. He wasn't even willing to share these fake accolades with his co-conspirator. You know, it's a sad, it's so sad the things that sin convinces us to do. The way that sin can twist our thoughts and make us turn our backs even on those people that we love the most. Verse 8, tell me, Peter asked her, did you sell the field for this price? Yes, she said, for that price. And Peter said to her, why did you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they're going to carry you out. Instantly, she dropped dead at his feet. When the young men came in, they found her dead, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. She had an opportunity to repent here. She missed it. It doesn't seem like she was very good at picking up context clues, if you ask me. No one's meeting her eye. If somebody dropped dead in this meeting right now, and I had said, hey, this dude dropped dead because he lied to the Holy Spirit, and then th we're all hanging out, and three hours later, his wife comes in. You going to act normal to that person? No. Nobody's like meeting her eye line. People are unusually quiet. There's probably someone crying in the corner. As soon as she walks in, Peter walks up to her and asks her a very pointed, very specific question about amounts, the one thing that they're lying about. But sin blinds us, and she too finds herself guilty of what John will later call in his epistle, the sin unto death. There is sin unto death. And we talk about it in the book of Corinthians on Sunday morning. There are certain things, they're not fixed. There's not a flow chart we can follow. There are certain things where the Lord says, that's in, that's enough. You're going home early. For the Corinthians, it was getting drunk at the communion feast. For Ananias and Sapphira, it was lying here to the Holy Spirit. John, we're not exactly sure what he was talking about. But there are certain things where the Lord says, that's enough. You're coming home early. I'm tapping you out. And what a sad thing that is. Dr. H.A. Ironside wrote this. He said, what was the offense of Ananias and Sapphira? They pretended to a greater degree of Christian devotedness than they really possessed. That was all. But it was a tremendously evil thing in the sight of God. Verse 11, then great fear came on the whole church and on all who heard these things. While the Lord was able to use this terrible situation to minister to people, the fear of the Lord passing through the church, we can't help but compare Ananias and Sapphira with Barnabas, right? Their entrance onto the stage is very similar, has concerns the, the giving of, of offerings to the church. They're all church members. They're all sort of part of the same graduating class, right? They're all together there in the midst of all of that's going on. Both had resources. Both had opportunities through one of them came encouragement, edification, grace, comfort, inspiration. Barnabas would himself become an apostle. He's listed as an apostle in Acts 14. He would be instrumental in the life of Paul and the founding of the church of Antioch and all sorts of other things. The other two characters here, Ananias and Sapphira, well, 
The only spiritual benefit their story provides is that it serves as a terrible warning to us. The rest was just an absolute waste, and it's so sad. Their spiritual efforts were wasted. They weren't giving out of true generosity or a true desire to serve. They were giving out of jealous pride. Their physical efforts were wasted. It would have taken some sort of time and work and effort to get their fields prepped and sold and, you know, connected with a buyer and all of that. The money that they had held back for themselves, that was wasted. It was probably in their pockets that day when they got buried in the ground, right? Uh, Their potential for reward for actually doing something for the Lord was clearly wasted. Of course, their futures were wasted as well. Even their names were wasted. When we hear the names Ananias and Sapphira as Christians, we think one thing. We think this, right? They're forever attached to this infamous scene. Their names could have meant so much more. Their names do mean so much more. Sapphira means beautiful. Ananias means God is gracious. What could have been a testimony of God's goodness and power and graciousness and loveliness has become a warning of the destruction of sin. The waste of Ananias and Sapphira didn't even just affect themselves. It extended beyond themselves. Think of the young men who buried them. These poor guys, I doubt that they had wanted to spend their day burying two of their Christian friends. That's hard work. I've never buried a human body or two. But you know what? When I came to church tonight, I didn't think, oh, I sure hope I get to carry some dead bodies around today and dig big holes and have to put them in the ground after this incredible thing had happened. They didn't want to do that. It's hard work. It's sad work. I'm guessing they would have rather spent their day in prayer and worship and hearing the word taught and in the presence of the Lord. Instead, because of sin of their fellow believers, they had to do this job. They had to exert a bunch of effort and energy that was essentially a waste. It was a waste for them to have to do all of that. Because people in the church weren't walking their walk, these guys had to take a hard detour of their own that day. In contrast, we have Barnabas. We're going to see much more of him as the pages of Acts unfold. But instead of wanting to be seen as a big shot, he's simply just living out his faith. He's being led by the Spirit. He's noticing the needs around him. He's using what he has to minister to others. And because of that, his name is forever associated with encouragement, with comfort, with edification, with ministry. Of course, he wasn't perfect, but he was a growing, dynamic, Spirit-filled Christian, full of grace, used in all sorts of different ways. It's clear and obvious who we would rather be in this story. And so toward that end, we have some simple ways in which Barnabas encourages us and Ananias and Sapphira warn us. First, remember that we are called to bear one another's burdens, to actually do it. And it requires actual generosity, not just from everyone else around us, but from us. Second, the goal of our Christian life and the goal of our participation in the church is not prominence or recognition or accolades or anything like that. The goal is to glorify God and experience His grace. Third, we must guard our hearts so that Satan doesn't have space to influence us the way he did here. Even in the midst of signs and wonders being taught by people who walked and talked with Jesus, even people in that congregation were able to be drawn off and tripped up by the devil. And so we want to guard our hearts and fill ourselves with the Spirit and with God's grace. And we guard our hearts by being filled with the Spirit and by acknowledging how truly awful and dangerous sin is. And finally, we'd all do well to remember that our lives are full of potential and full of consequences. We want to spend ourselves the way Barnabas did, not waste ourselves like Ananias and Sapphira.